Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, Episode 24, The Seventh Seal. I will be using the Criterion Collection DVD issued in 2002, which is secondhand from D to the K to the motherfucking A to the third power. You can find Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal on Amazon Prime, YouTube, and the Criterion channel. If you press play on that DVD now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. All other forms of streaming services should start about 10 seconds later. If you're watching the older version of the DVD, you'll notice that after the Yanis logo, there's a Criterion logo that looks similar to an eye. That's intentional. Some of the promotional artwork I have for the Super 70 podcast has an eye, and I've adopted the catchphrase from San Mendez 1999 film American Beauty, which is, look closer. You should always do that to art. Quote, My play opens with an actor walking down into the audience where he strangles a critic, then reads aloud from a little black book all the humiliations he has noted therein. Then he throws up on the audience, after which he exits and puts a bullet through his head. Unquote. Ingmar Bergman's film Smiles of a Summer Night was nominated in 1956 at the Cannes International Film Festival for the covetous Palm d'Or, but lost to William Wyler's friendly persuasion. Smiles of a Summer Night was so well received around the world that when it was nominated for the Palm d'Or, Bergman immediately sent the script for The Seventh Seal to his producer, knowing that the time to make a movie about death would never be better. I want to start this commentary by asterisking a lot of what I'm about to say as shit that I've read or interpreted and convey again the idea that film is an interpretive art. I'm saying this because Bergman's films are considered very haute couture, and in doing any type of work on a Bergman film, you are liable to run into people who will very quickly throw tomatoes at you or throw you under a bus or stop you mid-sentence because you got something wrong. Well. I'm not a Bergman specialist, and I haven't spent my entire life like Peter Cowie studying Bergman films. And if that's what you're interested in, you should really listen to Peter Cowie's commentary on The Seventh Seal, not mine. It's stellar. It really is. And nothing I do will ever compete with that or most other commentary tracks on any criterion. So having said that, we're going to move on. The film opens with silence because it is mimicking our character's conversation with God. He is talking to God, and there is silence back. He later mentions this to death in the church. The beach shot starkly contrasts earth on one side and water in the sky on the other. It is very decidedly dividing the screen dark from light. And you know you will see very stark images of chiaroscuro lighting, which heavily emphasizes this very simple theme. And even though Bergman films are indeed thought of as these very deep intellectual films that only people in cafes wearing berets will understand, I think that you'll find the concepts that Bergman are dealing with are very easy arrived at with a logical mind, and he's very much like a lot of directors in that he is misunderstood. He's not making films for 2% of the audience, much like Hitchcock 
He's making films for everyone. In a premonition of death, we see the squire, Jan's laying on the beach, and at first we think that he is dead. We do not see a boat, and perhaps the night Antonius Block and Jan's washed ashore after a shipwreck. Later we see Jan's moving around, but we are hit with similar reminders throughout the movie. Antonius is praying here to God and asking for God to answer his prayers. In response, Antonius does not meet God, but death. And this is our first indication that the film is searching for some type of meaning. The Maltese cross on Antonius's tunic is more than just the sign of the crusader who has taken the cross. It is the sign of a marked man. He will not escape this film alive. The only question is who will go with him. The dissolve of the chess set is moving from one castle of rock to another larger castle of rock. And that dissolve cut harshly to a third imposing figure who might as well be uns as unmovable as rock. That of death. The sound cuts out because nothing can be heard when death speaks. The introduction of the chess game is a depiction of a 15th century painting by Albertus Pictor that depicts death playing chess for the lives of his opponents. Antonius Bloch, our not-so-noble knight, even admits that he has seen the game played in paintings. This will be revisited later. Behind Antonius is a wall of rock preventing his escape from death and cruelly what appears to be a cave that is also blocked by a wall. There is no escaping death. Antonius keeps his calm when faced with the supernatural. Perhaps this is because he thinks if something otherworldly like death exists, it could possibly be that God exists too. He asks for further proof of this, which is in part the path he takes through the film. The chess pieces mimic the sea and sky in the background, and our players represent their pieces. Block is in a lighter outfit, which contrasts greatly to Death's dark robes. Of course, Death chooses black. White would not have made sense, and in any way, it is a funny aside. Though this is a modern film about existentialism, we must not lose sight of the plot of a returning knight to Sweden. The Crusades were huge events in European history as well as catastrophic events for the Middle East, as a whole for both societies to undergo. Every nation in Europe sent knights on crusades. Even kings went. If you would like to know more about the crusaders in film, you should listen to episode 19 of the Super 70 podcast, in which we comment on Ridley Scott's The Kingdom of Heaven. Here are more dissolves that show us the divided world, a dichotomy between good and evil, Represented, of course, by a stark contrast between bright and dark. As the day brightens, we still see this divided world. The seven seal is loaded with doorways and gates. Just as you saw the false gate in the rock face on the beach, here you will see our travelers through a break in the wall of rock, also a type of doorway. Later, you will see exterior and interior gates, and I have to say I'm not exactly sure what Bergman was meaning by them. Gateway to heaven? Gateway to death. The natural exterior gates are more visible than the man-made interior ones. Perhaps he was commenting on the gates of hell or possibly the pearly gates. I simply don't know. I have not run across it in my research. There was a previous shot of Jans on horseback and you saw the landscape divided behind them between darkness and light and that was followed up by a similar shot of Antonius. The only difference being you saw the front of Jans and the back of Block, 
Jans is looking forward and Block is looking backwards. This typifies the difference between the two men throughout the film. One is a believer, the other is not. They coexist in the same universe, but who is right and who is wrong about what is up for great debate. This quick cut to the monk's face is another premonition of what is to happen to our warriors once they get home. Why is this monk dead and why is he by the seaside? That is beside the point. I read in a paper once that this is actually death showing himself to Jans. And if Block had seen him, he would have been personified. And now we move on to the subplot of the movie, which is this traveling band of entertainers. When I first watched this movie, I was actually upset that Bergman had even put in this other storyline. It did not seem interesting to me and rather annoyed me. I held off watching it a second time exactly because I thought it was boring and it had no place in the film. Now, if you think Bergman is going to waste time in his films, you're misled. He's not wasting any time. He's showing you exactly what he wants you to see, and these performers are no different. The names of the performers are a bit on the nose once you figure them out. Niels Popier plays Joff, which is Swedish shorthand for Joe or Josef. B.B. Anderson, who was for about two decades Bergman's love interest in real life, and even after they split, she continued to be someone he drew inspiration on. She plays Mia, or maybe Mary. Such are the roles of young blondes to film directors, Grace Kelly, Sybil Shepard, Jennifer Lawrence. You get the picture. So Anderson plays Mia, or Mary. So, of course, you have Mary and Joseph. The third guy here is named Scat. And that's because he's full of shit. Bergman contrasts the environment of both parties. Block and Jan start in a craggy, loud environment which seems uninviting and hostile. By contrast, Yoff and Mia are in a field surrounded by trees, the Garden of Eden. The day is bright here as opposed to the overcast beach. When I first saw this, I thought Yoff's vision of the Virgin Mary walking the baby Jesus was an illusion. But why should it be? If Block sees death, and we all believe it to be true, then why can't Yoff see the Virgin and Jesus? Why is one more true than the other? This gets us to a point about the seventh seal that I think is very important. People who know about the seventh seal or who have seen it once pigeonhole the script as a one-sided perspective about block and death. But if you watch the film enough, you get the idea that everyone in the film has a different perspective on not just life, but death too. Many people focus on block being an atheist or an agnostic or a non-believer, or at least an existentialist. But even if all those things are true, it does not take into account that there are many other people in this film, many of who have very solid faith, and others who have varying degrees along the way. It would be improper to characterize this film as anti-faith or anti-religion or anti-whatever without taking a good hard look at the other characters in the film. Death is just one of these characters. Yoff is another equal character. 
Look as the smile on his face as he recounts the story of seeing Mary and the baby Jesus. Look at Mia's face as she is entertained by her husband's story. These two are in love. She sees him as a charming, faithful man, but she doesn't believe his story. It does not make her a non-believer in Jesus, just a non-believer in her husband's vision. If we focus on Bloch's discovery of the nothingness after life, we leave out the fact that Yoff certainly, and Mia most likely see, a very different and very positive life after death. Miss Anderson just passed away last year. She had a strong quality about her. I don't know what it is. She's not like Grace Kelly or who did I say before? She's more natural like Tippi Hedren, I say. I read on IMDb that her relationship with Bergman was brief, but hell, they did 13 movies together. Smiles of Summer Night, Wild Strawberries, The Seventh Seal, The Magician, Rabies, Brink of Life, the Devil's Eye, All These Women, Persona, The Passion of Anna, The Touch, and Scenes from a Marriage. Many of these you can find on the Criterion Collection and Channel. There is something about her quality that changes. I don't know what it is. It's a very subtle change. And of course, in Persona, she's just a chameleon. If you want to know more about The Seventh Seal, I'm putting some books and essays in my citations, but whatever you do, don't buy or even read for free the British Film Institute's book on The Seventh Seal by Melvin Bragg. With all due respect to Mr. Bragg or Baron Bragg or whatever you want to call him, he's a great historian and a great radio personality, but his book on The Seventh Seal is atrocious. I'm shocked it was published. It's more about him and less about the film. I was actually lost when I read it, and it has no bearing on the movie. Anyway. This is definitely the first Swedish film I saw, and I dare say that most Swedish films I've seen are Bergman films. When you tell people it's a Swedish film, they're kind of taken aback, and you get the typical American reaction right, which is... What the fuck type of movies can they make in Sweden? And your answer, well, Max von Sydow is in it. He plays a knight who's coming back from the Crusades and is pursued by death personified. And he makes a deal with him, right? Like, we'll play chess, and if I win, I get to keep your life for now. And now all of a sudden, your audience is interested because for some reason, even the dumbest American knows who Max von Sydow is, or at least before this century started. But this idea that Sweden is this sophisticated place, that it's not an alien idea now. And it wasn't in the 50s. Harry Martinson won a Nobel Prize for Literature in 1956 for Ana which was discussed the nuclear reality the entire world lived in, which by then was only 11 years on. In 1950, Par Lagersvisk won another Nobel Prize for Barabbas. Now, if you don't remember who Barabbas was, then shame on you for not remembering your Sunday school. Barabbas was the criminal who was crucified with Christ on Good Friday. Only unlike Christ, he was guilty of sin. And in the book, he represented a man imprisoned in himself who was looking for faith but did not believe in God. Now, 
look at Block in this film. Tell me, does he not look like a prisoner? In the next scene, it's going to look like he's in jail. Is this not the modern man? The man who doubts? The man who is just not sure? That sounds like the modern man to me. Not the man who is over it. The man who wants to know the truth because he thinks knowing the truth is vital to surviving on some level. Surviving death, if you can look at it that way, because there is no heaven. But if there isn't a heaven, well, then we're all deluding ourselves. And that's why scat hangs his death mask. Short is your day. Right? Bergman has this amazing ability to parallel almost everything in this movie. Scott hangs the death mask, which is clearly an omen. It's following that theme strongly. And then we cut to Yoff and Mia, and they're in full sunlight, and life is good, and all is well. And you just think, how lovely is this film, even though Yoff really can't juggle, and they mention a burial. I read Peter Cowie's book on Bergman, which is rather exhaustive, and I have to say I think I know more about Bergman than I should or really want to, and I really didn't attain all that much from the book. But one of the things that I picked up on is this intense religious childhood he had and how much he had turned away from it, which I completely understand. It's like George Carlin. Bergman knew an extreme amount of not just about religion, but Lutheranism, Catholicism, and specifically the dogma surrounding it. He was very well educated in the ecumenical nature of Lutheran spirituality, and he absolutely turned his back on it. I won't say he completely hated it, but he turned his back on it. And you see his vision of the church's morality, or rather what he sees as the church's immorality on display everywhere in his career, but specifically in this film. And whenever you see a religious subject come up, you're thinking, okay, here we go. Here's Bergman's view of religion. And this scene neatly lays out two perspectives of both religion and the plague. The painter is a believer, and he thinks that painting an accurate picture of what is going on will scare the believers into acting righteously. And if you don't believe in God, then this will happen to you. And if Jan is very much the opposite thinking, he thinks it's all grotesque and none of it matters, or else he would be in the confessional with Block trying to find answers himself. And he's not, because he thinks he has them, or that they don't matter. And that's pretty accurate of what happened in the Middle Ages. You had this super hardcore spiritual society going into the Black Death, and people thought that way. God is punishing us. What do I have to do to survive? And this society that comes out of the Black Death is just not that spiritual. Their belief is shaken like Antonius's, and it opens up a path in history for agnosticism or atheism on a massive scale, no larger than it is today. The secular society we have today is a direct result from that. There's so much going on in the confession scene that it's hard to keep it all in focus can even see flagellants in that painting. You could just talk about this one scene for an entire podcast. You could talk about the sets and the blocking and the dialogue, why Christ is depicted as being in total abject pain when in a lot of crosses he's depicted as silently sleeping. We have to ask ourselves why. If the knight is not so sure there is a God, is he even bothering to confess? It may be because he thinks he's going to lose the chess game, 
insurance policy. He says his sin is selfishness and indifference to his fellow man, which really doesn't make a lot of sense because he went on crusade. Presumably he was there to help save Christians in the Utremere. But if you look at the ending, if this is indeed his sin, he does redeem himself. And I think that's what Bergman is going for. But the real kicker in all this, despite all of the bleak dialogue, is Bloch accuses God of the same sin. Is man's selfishness the cause or the result of man's selfishness? Ouch. Bergman's not being too coy about what's going on. We see that death is masquerading as the priest that Block is confessing to. Block says he is a prisoner of his dreams, which is an interesting way to put it. And we clearly see he is separated from death by these bars, which are undeniably supposed to look like prison bars. Block says surprising things for a medieval knight, like how are we to believe the believers when we don't believe ourselves? And that puts belief in God into everyone's hands. Yours, mine, my 13-year-old, all of a sudden everyone is supposed to make their own decision about what to believe and what not to believe. A very counter-reformation idea. That is unmistakably a very Lutheran idea, although I don't think Luther meant that you should use that thought process to deny God's existence, which Antonius seems ready to do. And here, Bloch says, I want knowledge, not faith, not assumptions, but the truth. I want God to stretch out his hand and talk to me. But he remains silent, and death replies, perhaps no one is listening. And now it seems remarkable that Bloch does not snap to the fact that he is talking to death. No tried and true monk would say that. And the greatest line of all is one we all laughed at in film school, which is the line, we should make an idol of our fear and call it God. I tell you, that was just the biggest laugh, as it was in any Laurel and Hardy film that I ever saw. And there were plenty of people in the audience who hated that we were laughing at it and how dark it was that we thought the topic was funny. I should say here that I live in Texas and there is no shortage of believers. God is big here. Sidow behind the gate like he is in prison. This could be because as a crusader, we know he has perpetrated crimes. It's also because he's in a prison of his mind. He cannot believe there is a God because he cannot see any empirical evidence that God exists. Unlike other atheists who humph at this and move on, Antonius is upset because if there is indeed no God, then there is nothing for him after he reaches death. And this is heavily on his mind because he met death that morning and he knows that he has a little chance of escaping him. And that brings us to the central core of what this film is about. We'll get more into this scene later. The dreaded existentialism, and the unfortunately we, we have to go there. What is existentialism? Well, let me look up uh, Wikipedia here because it's never wrong. It is a form of philosophical inquiry that explores the problem of human existence and centers on the lived experience of the thinking, feeling, acting individual. The existentialist believes that the individual, not society or religion, is solely responsible for giving meaning to life and living it passionately and sincerely. 
It was an idea many philosophers toyed with. Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Heidegger, for example, but its most famous proponent was none other than Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre's landmark book on existentialism is Being and Nothingness, 1943, in which he explained his existentialist take on just about everything in life. But most importantly, if you follow his conclusions to the end of the line, Sartre is very clear that there is nothing after we die. Absolutely nothing. Now, you imagine reading that, and two years later, the Yankees wipe two cities off the face of the earth. Oh, and then four years later, the Reds say, we've got a bomb too. And in fact, we're going to make thousands of them just to compete with the Yankees. It would make you rather nervous, would it not? I think that's Bergman's traveling point here. The point of the seventh seal is to unveil this question and explore it. If God is not there, if he's dead or never existed or what have you, what does that actually mean for all of us? You, me, them, everybody, everybody. But another key thing to think about and mull around here as we think and think and think like we're Fran Lebowitz locked inside the New York City Library is even if this is true and Sartre's point of view was, it was, and there is in fact nothing for us after we die, then how do we choose to live our life? Sartre explores this question for the rest of his life, and he bases a lot of it on free will and behavior. I'm not going to go into Sartre's relationship with Simone de Beauvier, which all of you should read about and you should get to know and all of that, or what he says specifically about specific circumstances. Well, I hope that you don't, but the movie is still young. But what I'm trying to get at here is that Sartre did not think that it was a tragedy that there is nothing after we die. We can focus on that like Antonius, or we can embrace it and live our lives like it's the only one we have, which Satra thinks is true. So keep that in your head, because that thinking process comes into play later. What we choose to do in the face of knowing there is no afterlife, that is a worthy discussion. And that's the discussion we're having in The Seventh Seal. Maud Hansen is the young girl playing the witch here, which I always found in this strange gray area between stunningly sexy and utterly frightening. This poor girl looks like she has lost her mind, and it's very disconcerting. And ever since I saw this, I've had a hard time thinking that Bergman wasn't ripping off of Rene Falconetti's performance in The Passion of Joan of Arc, the famous silent film. There you have this girl, Joan, looks to me to be roughly the same age also beautiful, having visions, hearing voices, and the local assholes decide she's possessed by the devil, so let's cook the bitch. They both did have short blonde hair. More on that later. Hansen did not act on screen much after this. She mainly did Bergman films, but she did go on to have a career on the stage. Unfortunately, she passed of cancer just in October of last year. Antonius and Jan ride side by side in the next scene, as opposed to Jan riding behind him like he was previously. 
I read in one essay about how after the visit with death, they were on equal footing since they were both toast in the end anyway. I don't know what to think about. It's kind of red to think that way. In red, I meant Bolshevik, communist, fellow traveler, that type of red. Wasn't mincing words. You also have to put this in the context of what is happening in world cinema at the time. Cinema in the 1950s was all about this technicolor faith revolution. Quo Vadis in 1951. The Robe in 1953. The Silver Chalice in 1954. The Ten Commandments in 1956. The Seventh Seal is 1957. The Big Fisherman, 1959. Ben-Hur, 1959. King of Kings, 1961. Religious films were on the rise in the 1950s, and it's no stretch of the imagination that it fits in with the conforming wasp nature of America then, of Eisenhower, America's desire, and some would say dire need of stability and everything being the same. I'm sure the Depression and the war had everything to do with that, and here, smack dab in the middle of all that, was Bergman's jaw-dropping existential bomb of a film that denied the existence of God. That we are being, but that there is nothingness. Talk about going against the grain. Bergman was an expert at going against the grain. He did that his whole career. And here we are in another situation where we think, why are we spending time on this scene? Why is it here? And I have to admit, I didn't get about half the movie the first time I watched it. I largely attribute that to the fact that the VHS copy I first saw was dubbed in English. It would have been much better if it were in Swedish with English subtitles like it is now. And in this scene, what I want you to do is to take a look at the chiaroscuro lighting here, the sharp contrast between light and dark. Are you in another cage? Bergman is not doing anything new there. Chiaroscuro has been around as long as the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But Bergman, at the beginning of the movie, starts alternating between the massive world of gray and the polarity of black and white. When you see Antonius and death, there's lots of gray. When you see the chess set, stark black and white. He's alternating the lighting depending on the scene. And in the scene, you see the polarity, because he wants you to see the difference between good and evil. When you first come into this village, it's massively gray. Everyone looks like, what, they're gone? Well, where are they? Well, it is probably the plague that took them. The ambiguity is definitely a gray area. When you cut to the inside of this barn, all of a sudden you're in stark black and white, because this guy, at the very least, stealing stuff off a dead person, probably a plague victim, Raval is his name, and you know that what he is doing is wrong. You see the plague. The plague is not something whipped up by a person. That's death doing his job. That's great. But a human being committing transgressions, that's definitely a black and white moment. And I think that's what's happening here. Brilliant editing in this shot. Brilliant shot composition. See the mute girl falls back into the shadow. When you see the knife at the throat, you think Yana's going to cut his throat. Then you cut away to see the girl's reaction. You think, well, he did it. Which is a common assumption to make. 
particularly of films back then in which there was not a whole lot of bloodshed. But then you cut back to the thief and you see that he's still alive. I don't know why Jan didn't kill him. Perhaps he's seen enough blood. There's no gray in that shot. Notice how Raval is not scared that Jan may slit his throat. It's just another day. He might die tomorrow of the plague. <laughs> you never know. So death, whether it is personified or alluded to in paintings or talked about among the actors in the dialogue or however it's alluded to, death is in every scene in this picture and is defined in two stages, gray and the stark chiaroscuro. Melvin Bragg has an interview with Bergman on YouTube, if you have the time, that is real interesting, despite his book. Bragg has been with the BBC forever, and he's a huge fan of Bergman. He's an excellent interviewer, and he talks on the side about how Bergman came to the interview and started to rearrange all of the lighting in the room the way a director would do it on the set, and the BBC crew let him do it. He changed everything around, and then they had this interesting interview. Bragg has his own podcast on the BBC called In Our Time, which I greatly recommend. So even in productions that are not his, Bergman is controlling lighting. That's what I was trying to get to. It reminded me of Michael Jackson during one of his last interviews when he was confronted with the whole, you sleep with children type thing. And he has so many lights in the room, it looked like the moon excavation scene in 2001. And here we are at the play. Yoff, Mia, and Scat are playing, and I'm not kidding, the devil, the jester, and a ghost. The horns on the head are a dead giveaway. Notice their outfits, which are starkly black and white. No gray. The scene that's painted on their backdrop looks like a typical medieval village, kind of like the one that they're in right now. And this song they're playing is very on the nose. The lyrics to the song are literally, quote, the black one dances on the shore. Well, who do you think the black one is? And did this movie not start out on a shoreline? Everyone understands this song is about death. And this attitude was very similar to now in terms of how we make fun of death, ridicule it, etc. And if you don't believe me, watch Bill and Ted's bogus journey with Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, because believe it or not, it is a remake of The Seventh Seal. Notice there is a knight drawn on the backdrop. I wonder who he is speaking to. The play and the procession which is coming sometimes is divided into two scenes. When I read an essays on The Seventh Seal, I don't know why writers do that. It's the same scene. The actors, and remember Bergman directed plays his entire life, not just in school, but while he was shooting films like The Seventh Seal, he was directing plays, sometimes with the same cast. Anyway, this is one scene. The actors are trying to bring frivolity, if we can use that word in a podcast. They're trying to lighten the town's mood because it has been so clearly struck by the plague, and the town is rightfully dour and upset. So, Yoff and Mia are genuinely trying to cheer up the crowd with some good, old-fashioned, light-hearted fun, and scat... As you can tell, it's also going to go for some good, old-fashioned, light-hearted fun. And you'll see where that gets him in the end. And if you listen to the song, or rather if you read the lyrics to the song that Yoff and Mia are singing on the stage, you can see that they are still singing about death. 
And specifically, they're talking about death taking a shit on the beach. The black one runs on the shore. The goat hisses with his two teeth. I don't particularly like this shot, and I can't wait for it to be over. Scat is pretty deplorable as a man, but I guess he's predictable, like every other man you know. And anyway, going for a roll in the hay, as Terry Garr would say. I guess they got KFC on their way to the set that morning. This is so over the top. It's it really as of a scene of no, maybe Young Frankenstein or something like that. It looks like Mel Brooks. The blooming flowers. It's all a bit too much for me. But hey, whatever. Come follow me into the bush, right? The cat grunts. The sow legs eggs. Okay, now we're back on stage where we need to be. Thank God that's over. The night is suit and the dark remains. The black one stays on the shore. Watch this amazing push-in that happens. Push in. Devil and a clown. Cut away. Wow. Something's so simple and yet it has such power. The play is interrupted by the flagellant procession. So for those of you who are not medieval historians, I have a definition from a great medieval mind like John Zofi, but instead the dreaded Wikipedia. Flagellants are practitioners of an extreme form of mortification of their own flesh by whipping it with various instruments. Most notably, flagellantism was a 14th century movement consisting of radicals in the Catholic Church. It began as a militant pilgrimage and was later condemned by the Church as heretical. The followers were noted for including public flagellation in their rituals. This was a common practice during the Black Death. So why are they doing this? As a public sign of penance for sins and as a form of piety. Christ was flagellated by his Roman captors before he was forced to drag his cross to his execution. You can see the emotion of the truly faithful in watching this as they take the knee. In this specific case, these people are flagellating themselves because they feel like they have sinned and the only way to pay the penance is to beat it out of themselves. It's a pretty warped way to think, but that's the Middle Ages for you. Everyone was a layman or better. And this is all comes from the plague. The reason we have the plague is because we as humans, as children of God, we have sinned and God has punished us because we have sinned. So as sinners, we are guilty. This is a guilty society. This is what they all think. And these flagellants also think that if they punish themselves, some of them to death, 
then they take the brunt of God's punishment and the rest of them will be okay. So it's kind of like taking one for the team, like Christ sacrificing himself. They are walking in his footsteps, that type of thing. Peter Cowie said the flagellants might have sprung from one of the church murals that Jan saw earlier, or maybe one that Bergman had seen himself, which we know to be true. The great and eminent past historian Barbara Tuckman wrote in her book, The Distant Mirror, that although these processions were sanctioned by the Pope, it is well known now that these were all dire health risks. As these processions traveled from town to town, guess what? They brought death with them. They marched from city to city, quote, stripped to the waist, scourging themselves with leather whips tipped with iron spikes until they bled. They carried candles and relics, tore at their hair, wore ropes around their necks. The Black Death had eliminated around a third of the population of Sweden during the decade following its arrival in 1349. As the procession enters the square, Bergman shoots the scene from a series of low camera angles as to suggest the terror these wretches inspire is in the onlookers. All of this is an appalling vision that could have been painted by Hieronymus Bosch, the famous medieval artist. Quote, when the flagellants stumble on their way again, the high camera setup reduced them to insignificance. Their wailing diminishes. And by cunning dissolve, Bergman creates the impression that they have vanished into the barren ground, symbolizing the futility of their religious fervor. And that whole interruption of the stage by the procession, that's more of a Bergman duality, right? Showing you two opposing themes, hedonism or joy or whatever you want to call it with the asceticism, right? Extreme self-denial, extreme austerity. And of course you have another skull, a repeated motif here. And the monk gives this pot boiler of a speech, but it's in direct contrast to say the Sermon on the Mound by Christ, right? Blessed are the poor, they shall inherit the earth and that thing. It's a fire and brimstone speech, but it's boring as hell. And you know what? I think it's meant to be. Remember that Bergman's father was a pastor and in private life, apparently he was even more of a pastor. Peter Cowie wrote that, quote, punishment was meted out in ritualistic ways in the Bergman household. Expiation through suffering was the order of the day. Cowie has an interesting line on this that you'll forgive me for quoting in full, quote, Bergman's view of the church is filled with revulsion and loathing. Death is a surrogate priest. The monk harangues the flagellants with the cynicism of a modern demagogue and a total disrespect for humanity. And now a third cleric, Raval, comes to the foreground as a blazon of evil, unquote. In the next scene, we'll see Jan finds him robbing a dead man, or rather in the last scene, and he's ready to rape a serving girl. Raval is apparently the priest who sent Jan's on his quest so that he and his accomplices could, quote, indulge their thieving instincts at home, kind of like King John when King Richard was away, or Prince John, I should say. So it's fitting that Raval at the end of the film falls victim to the plague, spoilers, that he regards as this instrument of divine disfavor, right? The line here where Jan says his Lord Knight is laughing at him juxtaposes the cynicism and the believer in a very opposing way. Jan's is the one with a sense of humor, and the knight is the one who never smiles. But Jan says the opposite. Then in the next minute, when Plog comes out, he drops a joke about his wife. So now, if you don't mind, I want to go back to the wood painting in the church. 
it went by way too fast, and there are entire chapters written on it. So while we're waiting to get to the burning, I want to talk about the painting and the confession and all of it. And we're going to take a little break here from the scene by scene. I've read more about this painting than I did about the confession. Bergman was heavily influenced by this enormously famous Swedish painter from the Middle Ages named uh, Albertus Pichter. I've named him before. And even in his play, The Wood Painter, which we'll get to later, he mentions Pichter and says the story of that play is lifted directly off of one of Pichter's frescoes in a church in Sweden, which is like a 12-foot-long diatribe about how hopeless life is. Just imagine that. Seems like it's antithetical to put that into a church, but, you know, maybe not. Bergman wrote the original play Wood Painting in Malmo when he was teaching. He divided it into several monologues, and the number of students he had in class determined the number of roles. This was the basis of The Seventh Seal. It was written and produced in March of 1955, and he did it with two different casts. The second time, he used B.B. Anderson, and that play has been called a dry run for The Seventh Seal. There is the plague, a burning of a witch, the dance of death. But there is no holy couple or chess game with death. Instead, it leans heavily on the blacksmith and his wife. But Jans, the squire, are there, and his dialogue is almost line for line in the film. The important take from is the structure. Though The Seventh Seal is famously known as Max von Sydow's breakout hit, there are no main characters in The Seventh Seal. All the cast has almost equal screen time because the screenplay is based on the idea of rotating these roles in an acting class. So Bergman's experience as a stage director is directly responsible, not just for the mood of the film, but also the structure of the film. And before we get to the confession, which I also want to cover more in depth, I want to tell you that the strong Star Wars cantina vibes I get in this scene. Is this not Luke getting hassled by the bandit with the death sentence and 12 systems? And then he's saved by a squire, if not by an extension a knight. We can tell ourselves that George Lucas didn't see this, but he saw the seven samurai. So it's not outside the realm of reason to think that this influenced that scene, at least. Now back to the confession scene before. It's probably the most talked about scene in this movie. Antonius knows for sure he's going to die. So like all good Christians, he's going to confess. That's not subversive at all. That's all very typical for this time period. But what is subversive is this idea that he can get out of his day with death and the finger pointing that's going on. Antonius knows that he has committed the sin of selfishness. He admits to it. He confesses to it, but he throws the accusation back at God. Like I was saying before, is God also not guilty of the same sin? So then is man's selfishness the cause or result of, of God's selfishness? That is subversive. Even more subversive than this, you know, Lance Henriksen moment right out of Aliens. The knife trick. Cowie described the confessional as a place that should be a place of liberation. Instead, Bergman turns it into a place of incarceration. The cramped stall, the heavy iron bars, like a prison with death as a jailer. And every time I see it, it reminds me of the passion of Joan of Arc, which, again, Carl Theodore Dreyer had to have an influence. Now, on to existentialism. And you're going to have to forgive me for diving a little bit deeper here. The opening scene alternates that bird's eye view, right? We see the sky, and then we see the bird, and then we see the low human perspective. We see 
block and yawn. Yawn's lying on the beach and we're supposed to get man's existential sense of desolation. Right? The beach almost looks like a desert. And as you go through the film, you constantly see this hue of desolation, empty fields, empty villages. On the church wall, in the courtyard, during the burning, here in the fire in the pub, and in the final shot in the mountain. And it's this desolation, a spiritual desolation that is very real from the Middle Ages and an emptiness that is very real. The plague is that emptiness, and it is metaphorically portrayed by the Black Death in the film. Bergman wrote in his book, Images, that it was his fear of death, even as a young man, which led him to writing The Seventh Seal. At the time, he saw it everywhere, which is why it is everywhere in the film. Cowie wrote that, quote, death was the only certainty in Bergman's childhood environment. The meaning of death, both its physical agony and its metaphysical implications, haunted Bergman in his mid-50s and dominated his major films. He said, quote, I was afraid of this enormous emptiness. He said this at a press conference in Cannes. My personal view is that when we die, we die, and we go from a state of something to a state of absolute nothingness. And I don't believe for a second there's anything above or beyond or anything like that. And this makes me enormously secure. And in a weird way, you can see this play out in a film. Jan is now really scared of death because he's a believer. The, I meant Yoff. The knight, because he is not a believer, because he is uncertain of what is after death, wants to delay it as long as he can. I know he says he's not scared of death, but I really don't believe him. I know he wants to hang on for as long as possible, so he will do something meaningful in his life, but I really do think that he's scared of death. See the skull on the stake here? Mmm. You can't talk about this movie without talking about the Black Death. The bubonic plague has a disastrous effect on the lives of everyone in the old world during the Middle Ages and for centuries afterwards. The disease killed off something on the low end of a quarter of everyone alive, and probably that was closer to a full third. It was not just something that happened, it was something that was endured. You would only slightly have a better chance of getting through it than if you flipped a coin. There are some villages in Europe where the disease killed half the people, or in a few cases, everyone. It was that serious. And this film, being so close to after the war, and being as it is about death and what people thought was happening in Middle Ages during the plague, they thought it was the end of the world. They thought God was punishing them for being a sinful society. More than just thinking this, they believed it. And this being the 1950s, when the seventh seal is shot, it is easy to see this as a metaphor for a nuclear apocalypse. That the plague is just a stand-in for a nuclear war between the Americans and the Soviets. On this point, Cowie wrote, quote, that 20th century man lives in the shadow of nuclear catastrophe is not fundamental to the film, but it allows one to share the bewilderment of the night and his companions. This search for knowledge illuminates all of Bergman's mature films. It imposes a pattern on life, which becomes a voyage through space and time. The transience of human existence does not depress Bergman as much as the pitiful groping of man to comprehend the world about him. And if you're Sweden, what the hell exactly are you supposed to do about this? You're not in the Politburo, and you can't vote in America, so what are you going to do? 
Well, Bergman, for example, he made this movie, but the meaning changes. I read an essay about the seventh seal that was written in the 1980s, and they saw the film through the lens of the AIDS epidemic. Now, this film was 30 years before that, so there's just no way. But you could read that into the film. COVID-19 has killed 500,000 Americans in the last 12 months. So it is real easy to see that into this film. Scary shit. And as far as the pub is concerned, and I know that we're past it, but mix that with the fact that Yoff and me and Scat are traveling musicians. Now, Bergman was educated in music, and he knew a lot about it. He had a heavy input into both diegetic and non-diegetic music in all of his films. And he once said, when I hear medieval music, I feel an absolute sense of it somewhere in my body, like a conscience. So he felt music to his core. And not just any music medieval music. The selections you hear are very distinct and on purpose. Bergman was fascinated with Carmina Burana. In his book Images, he said the Burana was inspired by medieval songs written by minstrels who, during the years of the plague and the blood wars, joined the big wandering crowds of homeless men and women traipsing across the lands of Europe. Among the crowd were scholars, monks, priests, and jesters. Kind of like Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. A few could write and then created songs that were sung at church festivals and fairs. What attracted Bergman was the whole idea of people traveling through the downfall of civilization and culture, giving birth to new songs. In this view, it's not hard to see how the man who made Smiles of Summer Night is also the same man who made The Seventh Seal. You can also see his great skill at compressing elements in his shots. His compositions are very crowded, and you'll see that taken to the nth degree in Ridley Scott films and Terry Gilliam films 30 years later. In Bergman's movie Thirst from 1947, you can see him experimenting with his compressed style of composition. There are shots that are foreground, midground, background, all in deep focus. He does the same thing in the pub, just as we saw, and the structure of the story continues to rotate between heavy moments and light moments. The pub was heavy. The wild strawberries is light. Yoff was lucky enough to get out of the pub alive, and here we are in the sunshine with BB and the baby, and everything is fine. Antonius even smiles. This rotation of light to dark to light to dark, Bergman wouldn't just do that in, in the movies, he would do that in his career. This film before this was Smiles of Summer Night, and then one after this was Wild Strawberries. So you can see the alternation was part of his overall plan. The milk in the strawberries, I'm guessing, is, of course, Wild Strawberries. This, this is nothing less than a communion, a last communion, if you want to look at it that way. Antonius and his trusty squire, milk and strawberries, replaces the bread and the wine. Notice that they're in a half circle, not a full circle. A full circle is birth, right? So a half circle has to be emptiness or death. You can see the death mask will still be in the background in some of these shots. Scat's death mask hanging there. I read that this is a democratic meal somewhere. After all, they eat and drink out of the same bowl. Can't do that today, not with the modern-day plague running around. And if you look at the iconography in Christian teaching, the strawberries are sometimes linked with the Virgin Mary, 
Milk is obviously a nourishment the mother gives to a child. Bergman would have known this. He has more than likely constructed this entire scene, much like the entire movie, with this type of Christian history and metaphor in mind. Now, Antonius sees all during the communion, he would recognize this like Bergman would. Antonius would see the milk and the strawberries as a communion. This entire meal is in great contrast to the one that you just saw in the pub when they're all whoring and drinking and eating it like it was their last day on earth. Well, for some of them it was, but you get my meaning. Bergman is again playing at a duality, contrasting the pub and the communion, showing you the difference between light and the dark. The pub was dark. This is light. So all these different ways. He plays with the light. He plays with the scenes. He plays with the presentations of the characters. He splits the scenes like how the play is interrupted by the flagellant procession. Notice Yoff is playing in the background, right in front of the skull. Peter Cowie recognizes four themes that distinguish Swedish films, which you can find in Bergman's films for sure, but are also in other Swedish directors' films. I could name them, but I would butcher their names so bad you'd laugh at me. The first of them is the importance of Nordic landscapes, and specifically the summer season, as evidenced in this shot. I would imagine, if you lived in Sweden, you'd worship the summer too. The second theme is a moral theme, the clash between the body and the intellect. You could say what you feel and what you know. For example, you could feel like there is no God, but you would know that there isn't. The third theme is the element of the supernatural, or at least a fantasy. The character of death in the seventh seal is this theme at the present. The last one is a social motif, which Cowie describes as society's basic dislike of the individual. And he describes this as Bergman's cast of bohemian protagonists railing against the established order and the smug paternalism of the community. No, I didn't write that. Take that for what it's worth. You can see all of those in the seventh seal. The night, for example, is ruled by ideals rather than by faith, and the pious have replaced God's righteousness with self-righteousness. I have been waiting. Bergman wrote that he and Bengt Ikerot, who played Death, came to a general agreement before shooting began. Death would have the features of a white clown, an amalgamation of a clown mask and a skull. This motif would be repeated throughout the film. Look at the deep focus composition in this shot, and the death mask is still hanging there. Bergman wrote, The fact that I, through dying, would no longer exist, that I would walk through the dark portal, that there was something that I could not control, arrange, or foresee, was for me a source of constant horror. That I plucked up my courage and depicted death as a white clown, a figure who conversed, played chess, and had no secrets, was the first step in my struggle against my monumental fear of death. It's hard to take in the fact that the budget for this film was about $150,000, which was next to nothing in the 1950s. Bergman managed to keep that price low because almost the entire film is shot in a studio or a backlog. 
almost nothing was shot on location. I've read this in some places that location shooting, which would have included the beach and the horse ride and some shots in between, was all done in about three days. And of course, this was shot in the summer. Bergman wrote, for me, a Swedish summer is full of deep undertones of sensual pleasure, particularly June, the time around midsummer, May and June. But for me, July and August, July especially, when the sun shines day after day, are a dreadful torment. And Woody Allen wrote that Bergman once told him that he did not want to die on a sunny day. It is also important to keep in mind the Swedish film industry at the time was just getting over a huge crisis. The government was allocating money for the film industry, and although it had some international hits, which was the goal of the Swedish film industry as a whole, not just to entertain Swedes, but to make money off of foreign markets so that they could continue to finance domestic entertainment, right? Sorry, I got off track and I lost my train of thought. Right, crisis. So. By 1951, the government instituted this entertainment tax. So the government put up this money for the films made in Sweden. After that money, excuse me, after that film made money, it had to pay back a proportion of the box office revenue to the government. So by 1951, that was so high that Peter Cowie wrote that, quote, a Swedish film needed to attract 800,000 spectators if it was to retrieve its cost. If a domestic feature drew 500,000 spectators, which it often did, the producer lost 120,000 crowns while the state pocketed a tidy 375,000 in taxes. The result of this is that the studios all went on strike and said, screw this, we're just not going to make movies. Well, that's not in Cowie's book. I said that, but you get my point. The strike went on and on and on, and the cinemas kept several new films on ice because they saw this coming. So, the public was fed a steady diet of new entertainment, so they were largely unaware that this crisis was going on, kind of like a pandemic. And finally, by 1952, the government agreed not to lower their taxes, but to take that, mon that money raised from the taxes and throw it right back into the film industry. Which was not really a concession, but it saved the industry in the short term. And that's why Bergman was able to greenlight all of these projects in the short term, like Smiles of Summer Night and The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries. This story sounds rather trite, and maybe it doesn't even mean anything, but the Swedish international market meant a lot. Bergman was in Cannes in 1953, pushing a film he made called The Naked Night. And there was this distributor from Montevideo there who had a lot of territory in South America that he could purchase for. And he loved Naked Night so much that he flew to Stockholm and he purchased several other Swedish films for distribution all over South America. And The Seventh Seal was way more successful than Naked Night. It's probably the most successful Swedish film of all time. And here we jolt back to the light-hearted frivolities of Joff, Mia, and Plog's romantic problems with his wife, who has run out with Scott. Joff and Mia are the very essence of life, are in direct conflict of tone with the knight and the squire, who have seen so much death. There is no way for the knight and the squire to escape death, but the love that binds Yoff and Mia is from the beginning stronger than the menace of death. Their love remains intact at the end of the film. They are faultless souls who survive, reviving hope for humanity again. But in this tale, 
they are not the norm. You remember when they put on their little farce about a cuckolded husband on the play, the crowd of villagers reacts with scorn and abuse. This is the roller coaster of lighthearted humor and heavy handed intellectualism that is the seventh seal. Frivolity is interspersed with moments of terror, so it becomes difficult to disentangle jest from threat. Cowie wrote that Bergman flourished in this period because his movies were created in a family environment. Everyone fetched and carried. Elsie Fisher, who was Bergman's first wife, was called on to choreograph the dance performed by Yoff and Me in the Village, just for instance. The more you hear about exchanges like this behind the camera, the more it reminds me of how Robert Altman's set was sometimes described as. Deeply supported and collaborative, and many people contributed and had ideas, but it was Bergman or Altman who decided what went in and what went out. The whole adventure of Scat and the Girl is Bergman mixing all of his favorite things. Life, theater, reality, fiction. You look at the play the troupe put on. Okay, you often me and Scat are pantomiming this theme of this husband who's being deceived by his wife and the lovers. Well, you can make whatever you want out of that role. And then just 20 minutes later, what do you see? Yoff and me are playing out the remainder of this play. And Lisa, that's the blacksmith's wife, she... Leaves her husband to go hook up with Scott. Don't ask me why. Neither of them look like anything special, but I don't think they're meant to be. So what you have is this real life is just as shallow and as crude and I guess you could say as sinful or as evil as what you see on the stage. Or I'm sure Bergman would argue what you see on the screen. This unleashes another layer to the seventh seal, the push and pull of the yin and yang of relationships, which alternates in the film just like the lightheartedness with all of a sudden seriousness about death. Remember, we are about to witness the lover's makeup and then a murder, then a, another round of jokes before we burn a witch to death. In the seventh seal, during the Middle Ages, when disillusioned crusaders are returning to Sweden, and they're encountering these ravages of the Black Death, each of these characters, they have an opposite number. The knight is accompanied by a squire, who is captious and sardonic, or his master is idealistic and romantic. Yoff and Mia, the simple loving couple who escape death's clutches, they're, in a way, linked to the stupid smith, Plog, in his business wife who are equally bound to each other. The silent girl, rescued in a deserted village by Jans, finds her counterpart in the poor young creature who's condemned as a witch. They stare directly into each other's eyes as though into a mirror. Just as the characters reflect on each other directly or obliquely, so do the ideas that dominate the film arise from a tension of opposites. Faith versus atheism, death versus life, innocence versus corruption, light versus darkness, comedy versus tragedy, hope versus despair, love versus infidelity, 
Vengeance versus magnanimity. Sadism versus suffering. I think you get my point. And here, Scat says his reality will become that of a corpse. Cowie also noted that Bergman's colleagues, quote, have frequently asserted that Bergman writes a part of his own personality into each of the characters, that he develops a rule with specifics in mind. That is correct. But to a singular degree, all Bergman's characters are related to one another. In the chaos of life, they are elements of the artist's psyche engaged in a kind of centrifugal dance away from their source. However, much at odds, two Bergman personalities may be, one may rest assured that beneath the bitter arguments, there lie fragments of the same soul. Well, I don't want to overstate the obvious here, but death is present during the picture in every scene. We said that before. Just because you do not see the personification of death via the actor does not mean that they're that he is not there. Remember that Bergman's dad was a Lutheran cleric. I've said that before. And during the first few years of Bergman's life, his father spent most days from morning to night burying victims of the Spanish flu epidemic. And when they weren't scared to death of the flu as children, there was really nothing to eat in Sweden. Even in the 19-teens and 1920s, it was just as poor as everywhere else in the world. Bergman's sister said he nearly starved to death when he was very young, and he became this contradictory person. He loved Sweden, but he hated the thing that made Sweden Swedish, which was this really religious, frugal living style. And despite his hatred of it, he lived his life that way. He loved his parents, but he hated how they brought him up. Peter Cowie said he'd become a rebel both because of and in spite of his parents. It's a very nuanced way to look at life, and you should look at all of his films in that same nuanced way. Now, if you're in the forest and you hear something that might come and kill you, where do you go? Answer, climb a tree. It means safety. So that is where Scat went. But, you know, in spite of the entire setup, I just don't know if this scene is funny. The way that Bergman works the camera, the way that it looks up at Scott and then down on death, and the way the editing is cut between the shot, reverse shot, it's like a comedy. If he meant for it to be humorous, then it's a very dark comedy. I'm still not sure what to think of it. I mean, I get the point. The point is you can't negotiate with death. That's what Scott is trying to do, and death is just not having it. Yes, I am ashamed. Death does not want to play chess. Death does want to play chess, though. So perhaps if Scott wanted to play chess... He would have been around a lot longer. I don't know. When the tree falls, the crash is followed by three clock strokes, which is similar to death's three knocks on the gate in the finale. Now, I guess now is the time to bring up the beautiful B.B. Anderson, as with Marlena Dietrich to Joseph von Stromberg or Grace Kelly to Alfred Hitchcock or Sybil Shepherd to Peter Bogdanovich. B.B. Anderson was Bergman's muse all throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. She's in Wild Strawberries, Brink of Life, like I said, Persona, Touch, Twelfth Night. They did have a relationship. It seems to have ended sometime after The Seventh Seal, but they kept on working together for the next 20 years. He even directed her in a stage plays. She even defended him and published essays. In 1979, she said that Bergman's films have been concerned with feelings. And we need to be concerned with feelings as human beings. Cowie writes their relationship, quote, 
Bergman's influence, allied to her own determination and intelligence, succeeded in establishing Bibi as a major international actress without, in any degree, subverting that first fine, careless rapture of her youth. Beneath her assurance and willfulness in many recent film roles, there lie reserves of humility and gentleness. Throughout that great scene on the hillside, in the Seventh Seal, when the knight speaks to her of his unhappiness and spiritual confusion, Bibi's lines are stitched unaffected alongside the embroidery of the knight's eloquence. Yet she is the catalyst, the force that gives the knight courage to pursue his identity. So it was with her and Ingbar Bergman for more than three entrancing years. Well, that was deep. And here, of course, in the interesting case of Jan helping those he does not want to help because he does not believe in what they are doing to the girl, he makes a good point. They are eight brave men. What threat could this little girl possibly be to them? Women become more and more important over Bergman's career. Cowie said that when he started, he was blind to the fact that women, quote, also demanded the meaning of life, also endured the emotional and intellectual torment of their male counterparts. By the time he gets to Persona in 1966, one might say that he could be the only male director who understood even one woman, if not two. Now look at this amazing cinematography by Gunnar Fischer, who Bergman used exclusively from 1951 to 1958, something like five or six movies. The clarity of the shots is simply amazing. The living pass behind the dead in that shot, and then the dead follow. And this actress who plays the witch, Maud Hansen, she's simply amazing in this role. And what really strikes me about her, other than her look, her gaze into the camera, is her short hair. What strikes me is that this film was released in Sweden in 1957. That's the same year that Jean Seberg starred in Otto Primager's St. Joan. Where I'm going with this is that Seberg's haircut was her trademark. For years, people called that cut a Seberg. It was well known even before she did Breathless with Jean-Luc Godard in 1960. I'm bringing this up because St. Joan was being shot in 1956, but this lady, Maude Hansen, would not have been seen popularly, at least in America, until 1958, but it looks like she has a Seberg cut, but... The Seventh Seal was not released in America until 1958. So I don't know who came first, uh, chicken or the egg type of thing. It's, it's a hell of a coincidence. You're talking about both of these actresses playing witches in medieval movies. Both of these actresses have the same haircut, and both actresses get burned at the stake. In Seberg's case, she was really burnt at the stake and carried scars on her body for the rest of her life. I don't know if one influenced the other, but, you know, it seems unlikely. It seems like Bergman would have had a, a better chance to see St. Joan since it was released in May 1957, and he would shoot later that summer with the film being released in Sweden in October. So it's, it's possible that he saw the film. He was known for going his own way, though, and establishing his own trends, but it's just a hell of a coincidence. And this is my favorite scene in the movie, in so much as an innocent person getting burned can be a favorite scene. Her gaze is just unbelievably strong. And it's the whole setup. Block is waiting for her to show signs that she sees the devil. And when she does not, he is upset because it means that there is no God as well, or at least there's no proof that he can see, because he's waiting for her to see it. 
he's basically using empiricism to deduce that God will exist if the devil exists. Because if she's evil, then she will see the devil. And if there's a devil, then there has to be a God. And one confused soul might say, yeah, but who is he playing chess with? Well, I say, ha-ha, death is not the devil. It's not even close. Two different people. And here's another thing here that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but hey, I like Tenet, right? So give me a break. Antonius gives her the potion to dull her brain. He's not being kind to her, not at all. He wants her pain to be dull so she can focus on what she sees before death. Antonius is closely watching her to see if he can see that she sees an afterlife, specifically if there's a devil, like I was saying before. Since she is being accused of doing the devil's business, and if she is indeed guilty, then she must see the devil right before he dies. And if there is a devil, then there has to be a God, right? Doesn't that make sense? And even if she does not see the devil, she might see a God, and that's even better. That's what Antonios is hoping for, but that's not what he gets. Of course, she's drugged. Maybe she doesn't see anything because she's drugged. So I'm just kind of confused about the whole plot point. But the acting is absolutely unbelievable between Sidow and Hansen. There's a loophole here too that I've never been comfortable with, and that's that as a crusader, hasn't Antonius already seen a bunch of shit? I'm I'm taking it for granted that he's killed a lot of Muslims. Did he not see them a second before they died? Do you specifically need an auto de fe to see the devil right before you die? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. But beyond all of that tomfoolery. The intensity here between Antonius and the witch is mesmerizing. Look at them stare into each other's eyes. Unbelievable. Her skin is almost sparkling. It's like there's glitter in her makeup. And it looks like Sidow is standing in front of some burning gates of hell. Siddow went on to Charlie Rose before he passed away, and he said that, that he had heard from Bergman's spirit many times. I'm just going to repeat that. Max von Siddow said he heard from Igmar Bergman's spirit after Bergman passed away in 2007. Full stop. There's something going on with the potion, too, because I, I had read that Bergman had surgery once and that he was given too much anesthetic and it left him with a lingering feeling. He said, quote, suddenly I realized that is how it is, that one could be transformed from being to not being. It was hard to grasp, but for a person with constant anxiety about death, now liberating. Yet at the same time, it seems a bit sad. You say to yourself that it would have been fun to encounter new experiences once your soul had a little rest and grown accustomed to being separated from your body. But I don't think that's what happens to you. First you are, then you are not. This I find deeply satisfying. Satisfying, huh? Bergman had an interesting point about Antonius. He said that Antonius was a fanatical believer, and he said the physical and spiritual suffering is beside the point compared with salvation. That is why, to him, everything happening around him is irrelevant. A mirror, image, a mere will-o'-the-wisp. But yawns. He's a man of the here and now. He feels the sympathy, hatred, and scorn. This is interesting to look at in this scene and think of this. 
Antonius is interested in salvation. Well, I mean, that's ludicrous to me. If Antonius wanted salvation, he should have stayed and died in the Utremere because the Pope said that anyone who died on crusade had their sins forgiven and went to heaven. So it seems to me that Antonius has made a very bad decision in coming back to Sweden. Unless, of course, he didn't believe in any of that hogwash while he was on crusade. Compare that to Jans. Jans has judgment. Jans doesn't like the woman. And he hates Scott. He even thinks about killing those soldiers that are going to burn this witch. So he's a man of feelings. And this is a classic buddy cop scenario, right? Murtaugh is the believer and Riggs is the atheist. It's as old as Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. And here fear has set in the traveling band of minstrels, right? Listen to what Mia says. We, we feel something will happen to us. But like death, they cannot see past the darkness. Antonius waits for his final moves against the opponent. And when the priest Raval appears, only to be shunned and die, things amp up in feeling. The man who told the others it was their Christian duty to die is now revealed to be a hypocrite. Remember, he's the one who sent them on crusade. Crusade. He is as broken as the rocks and the tree stumps that surround him. Now he asks for pity from the same people that he would give none to. And who is it among this group that tries to help Raval? It's Mia. Of course, it's St. Mary. And he would abandon her if he got the chance. He would thieve her dead body if he got the chance. He would ravish her if he got the chance. And yet she wants to help him. And as we keep this all in our head and remember that this is a very well planned out film, you also have to take into account the idea of opportunism. There are several shots in the seventh seal, including the dance of death, which is coming up that were purely acts of opportunity when Raval is grappling with death. Bergman let the camera run longer than usual before saying cut. Nobody knows why. And while those extra seconds were ticking away on the camera, the sun came out and a ray of light shone on Raval's corpse. And that is the shot that Bergman chose. And keep in mind, that was not done in a forest, but it was done in the organized safety of the Svensk Film Studio. Pause for effect. Camera running long. Ray of light coming over the body. The dividing line has become strikingly real now as they watch Raval die. Cowie wrote that Bergman used death and its attendant symbols to stimulate the living into a more vivid appreciation of their lot. No one in this traveling band is more aware of their lot than they are right now, watching Raval die of plague. In how many different ways have you watched people die in this macabre movie? Right? Bergman was fascinated with death and all of its manifestations. Cowie wrote that he studied the physical decay of the human body, quote, love's dwindling, the congealing of emotions and sympathies, the apparent aimlessness of life's journey perplexes him. Traditional faith has become obsolete. 
justice is suspect. And now the unexpected happens in the movie, which is that Yoff, who is prone to see visions, actually sees death playing chess with Antonius. This is unexpected for the audience as we just saw him as a nutcase until now. His ability now gives him and his family the advantage. It's strange because it's Yoff, the minstrel who does not go to church, who is possibly the most religious person in the film. He has visions of the baby Jesus. He's a moral person, a loving father, a devoted husband, a believer, the ideal Christian, a bright personality. So up until now, Antonius has been running from death, but when he sees Yoff and Mia make a break for it with Michael, he sees a purpose in his life, perhaps the only purpose he ever had seen in his life. All of a sudden, he's going to face death once and for all. And why is this? Well, the knight doesn't really have anything to die for, believe it or not, until up until this point. But he realizes that death wants to take the Holy Trinity with him, meaning Yoff, me, and the baby Jesus. Not Jesus, Michael. We all know he's Michael, not Jesus. Anyway, Antonius reasons that if his death gives them time to escape, then his life is not totally meaningless. And that is something to die for. So that is what he decides to do. He distracts death by messing up the pieces on the board. Death at first thinks that he's just fooling around and will not let him off the hook of finishing the game. This echoes what he just said about Antonius losing interest, and Antonius denies it. He even asks Antonius if he gained anything about the delay. From death's point of view, he did not. But Antonius has fooled death. He just has not saved his life. He only saved the life of the Holy Family. The dialogue between death and the knight amounts to a verbal equivalent of their struggle at the chessboard. Each remark seeks to outflank and outmaneuver the other. Cowie wrote, quote, The knight, recognizing the importance of the movement, sweeps his cloak over the chessboard, knocking over the pieces. Death is distracted and Yoff and Mia escape. Death tells Antonius that he will be checkmate at the next move, but Antonius does not care. He has accomplished his task. He is dying, as the memorials always state, so that others may live. A storm breaks over the land. Nordgren's music shrills and screams. Yoff and Mia cling together in the frail caravan that makes their ark. The Holy Family is delivered. Notice the Holy Trinity is set in a triangle as they ride to their safety. For the only time in the screenplay, Yoff refers to his wife as Mary, as evidenced in the English subtitles. They both pray in their own way. How cold death is. The finale parallels the tone in another film. In 1948, Bergman wrote a screenplay called Prison and shot it in 18 days for $25,000 with just 26,000 feet of film. And this film is what Peter Cowie describes as his first articulate expression about the difficulty of reconciling death and the belief of God. Bergman wrote, quote, Why must a person sooner or later arrive at a point where he, for a moment, awakes to a painful and unendurable knowledge of himself and his situation? And why is there, in that moment, no help to summon? Is earth hell? 
And is there in that case also a God? And where is he? And where are the dead? Just like the seventh seal, prison is filled with symbols and metaphors and has tributes to German expressionist cinema. There is a character in prison that says, there is one if one believes in God. As one no longer believes, there is no point to it at all. There is even a character in prison that resembles death, who is alone, cold, and ignorant. And Cowie's description of what happens next cannot be passed up. I'm sorry for quoting him so often, but the guy is brilliant. He says, quote, In the dead of night, Antonius Block and his doomed companions reached their destination, the castle where once the house was full of life, only the knight's wife, Karen, remains. Bad weather portends their fate. Like most Bergman couples, they shift together in uneasy reconciliation. You too have changed, says Karen. Somewhere in your eyes, somewhere in your face, is the boy who went away so many years ago. Block returns her gaze. It's over now, he sighs, and I'm a little tired. One can almost feel the melancholy and resignation that steal over him. Death is no longer an adversary. He is a minister of eternal rest. Home is the sailor home from the sea and the hunter home from the hill. This scene in the Spartan castle interior is quite simply one of the most moving and concise Bergman has ever directed. Even Karen's listless gesture and tossing a final log on the fire carries a charge of acquiescence in life's round. The smile on the face communicates regrets mingled with an intelligent appraisal of the night's predicament. Though she hasn't spoken a word yet in the film, the mute girl seems to understand everything before her. Despite her company, she knows she is not safe. There is fire all around. As the seventh seal closes, we recognize it as one of several films that Bergman made in his Malmo period that continues to provoke and deserve close analysis. Bergman has been in the vanguard of world cinema at three significant stages of his career, the late 50s with The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries, then the mid-60s with Persona, and the mid-70s with Scenes from a Marriage and The Magic Flute. He has always been admired, but in these three decades, Bergman took a huge leap forward, ahead of the pack. Directors around the world set off in pursuit, other times, Bergman has been content to follow himself. And as they have their last supper, Karen reads to her guests from the book of Revelations, the first angel sounded, and the second angel sounded, and the third angel sounded. Three mighty knocks resound through the castle. Jans goes to the door, but sees no one. Although Antonius knows for certain what is coming, the mute girl is the first of the bunch that does not know to suddenly come to conclusion that their life is going to end. A light at the end of the tunnel appears. 
and all the grass was burnt up. And a third part of the sea became blood. There's the tunnel of light. And then Jans returns, confused. And the second angel sounded. And Bergman starts tilting the camera radically when Jans returns, as if it were a German Impressionist film. Watch here. It canters, strangely. Then he levels it out just as fast. It gives the impression of normalcy again. Notice no one is eating. No one is praying. The mute girl starts crying. Burning as if it were a lamp. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. The girl starts breathing heavy, and Antonius notices her reaction. Then as Karen continues to read, death stands in the hallway, perfectly erect, motionless, patient, and unyielding as though he had always been there. The camera dollies back until all six of his victims are in the frame. Each makes an obsciences or a supplication to the great Lord, as Plog calls him. Karen welcomes death into her home as if he were an old friend. They all introduce themselves as if some of them hope that he will spare their lives. But there will be no sparing tonight. Jans, who cannot see death, urges his master to feel the very end of the triumph of being alive. Be silent, Karen tells him. I will be silent, Jan replies, but under protest. The horrible reality of what is about to happen has become painfully obvious to the believers and the non-believers in the room. Out of darkness we call to thee, O Lord. Have mercy on us. The mute girl has stopped crying and is almost smiling. Karen stares in what looks like dissatisfied acceptance. The mute girl is almost happy to see death. What has she seen that would give her this feeling? She's ready for her life to be over. Jan does not look at death. He looks straight into the camera. Antonius, he's not ready. He's horrified, full of fear, wanting to believe that nothing is there. He refuses to look at death. And in the first time in the movie, he prays to God. The full composition shot. And here we go. Each of them is representing a different way to beat death. Three men and three women. So kind of like a Noah's Ark. Five of them are facing full front, but the knight kneels down in the background, holding his hands together in profile, and you see the light from the window shining on him. The others, though they are in darkness. The mute, who has said nothing since the squire first found her in a deserted village, drops to her knees, gazes up at death with eager relief. She says Christ's last words, it is finished. Cut to BB the creator of life. Antonius was not protesting by not facing death. In that stance, you can see the knight's indifference to his fellow man, which is his sin, much like God. So his final scene plays out what we talked about in the church before. 
and the rest of them have different attitudes. Plog is apoplectic. I'm sorry, apologetic. The night is appealing. Yawns is protesting. Karen welcomes death. Lisa curtsies to him, and the girl sees relief. In the dawn light, after the storm has passed, we find the Holy Family safe and sound. And this is one of the many scenes shot on location in three days Bergman allowed outside the studio. Full planning and effect. And here's the famous shot coming of the six of them going up the ridge following death. It looks like a, a bit like the death mural you saw in the church. And they are metaphorically leaving Earth and heading to the afterlife. You can't tell who it is on the silhouette, so have they been robbed of their identity, you could say, or their individuality? But we have a logical problem here and that we think the six people on the ridge are the six people we just saw face death. What we should see is three men and three women. If you look at the clothes, you can tell that we have four men and two women, so what gives? To further confuse matters, Yoff says that they are the Smith, and Lisa and the Knight, and Raval, and Jans, and Scott. So that's five men and one woman. But where is Karen? Well, Yoff probably doesn't know anything about Karen. He never met her, but that shouldn't make any difference. Maybe the girl was left out because death saved her, possibly. We don't know what exactly is going on, and maybe we're not meant to. So in that, we know there is no objective knowledge, and all we can do is subjectively describe what we see. But rather than dwell on these things that are rather obscure and leading answers, we should also listen to the master, Peter Cowie, who said that the most famous scene of this film was done by accident. Early one morning, he said the unit was preparing for a different scene when the skies and the light changed, and Bergman announced on the spur of the moment that they're going to shoot the dance of death now. And what you see was whoever he could grab at the moment from the crew at the time. Kind of like death. Thanks for hanging out with me while we watched Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. The Super 70 Podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, and you can find it, my books and my blog, at www.thatdillandavis.com. All music on this podcast is written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. I'm Dylan Davis, and next time, we'll meet on the Champs-Élysées. New York Herald Tribune! <laughs>